On the show today, we have a person named Jack Austin, CEO of Quantum Breakthrough. Hi, Jack. Hi, Evan. How are you you doing today? Great. How about yourself? Well, doing well. Well, I want to ask you a question straight off the bat, and it's, what is NLP or neuro-linguistic programming? Okay. Um, Well, that stands for effectively um, the science of success. That was uh, really what Richard Bandler uh, and John Grinder had in mind when they developed it. Um, so, you know, I could go into the history of that. Uh, it was actually created at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where Bandler was a student and John Grinder was a uh, professor of uh, linguistics. And uh, John Grinder actually has a special ops background. Uh, so he was in the United States military uh, in operations. And uh, what, what started as a modeling experiment, basically, because uh, Bandler had actually gotten his uh, admission to the University of California to, to study uh, computers. Okay. And they had a whole computer lab that was dedicated to him. But because of the, the fault system in California, that computer lab was actually offline. So he had the run of it, but it wasn't, a, it, it wasn't in full operation. Okay. So he had some time on his hands because he uh, was a bit of an outlier as far as his uh, intelligence was concerned. And he had been raised in New Jersey. So when he came to the uh, University of uh, California at Santa Cruz, which is a very unique uh, university in the system. It's the only one of its type. Um, he was given the run of this um, lab, and there was you know pretty much no teachers or whatever, so he pretty much got to do what he wanted to do. And since he was uh, sort of double majoring in psychology, he started getting involved in uh, not just psychological theory, but in, in implementation of some things. And there were people doing uh, something called brief therapy in uh, – the Bay Area, as well as uh, uh, Fritz Perls and a number of other people who were doing uh, symbolic therapies that were having pretty sim- pretty impressive results. In other words, very rapid breakthroughs that were very outside the, the standard results for traditional Freudian psychotherapy uh, or uh, any kind of... Um, psychology that had been done up to that point. And um, so essentially what they did was they set about modeling uh, a number of different practitioners, such as uh, Eric Erickson, um, uh, actually Milton Erickson. Um, Eric Erickson is another psychologist. Uh, Milton Erickson is known as possibly the greatest uh, hypnotherapist in the world ever. Um, And he had the the misfortune or the benefit, depending upon how you look at it, as having contracted polio twice. And so he was actually in an iron lung, and he had to relearn how to walk and talk twice, and that started with crawling. So he actually was went through the process of, of observing his uh, sister as she was learning how to walk, and he 
trained himself how to do the movements necessary uh, to be able to, to relearn how to walk. Later, um, in the second incident, he was left uh, with a partially uh, paralyzed leg, so he walked with a cane. And the reason that I bring that up is because Erickson is known for Ericksonian hypnotherapy, which is also uh, conversational hypnotherapy. Okay. So it, it's awful. Uh, things like sleight of mouth are uh, referenced when when people talk about Erickson because he would tell stories to people and then they would just change. Right. So um, is, it, is it fair to say that he's kind of like the father of neuro-linguistic programming, like pre-neuro-linguistic um, programming, or kind of just someone who... He was one of the key models. Yeah, he okay. was one of the key models. Um, Virginia Satir was another one for a different aspect of things. So what they ended up doing was, you know, basically taking these these various different approaches that were having significant impacts and rapid results, and then modeling those those people. And um, Tony Robbins worked with John Grinder, and then came up with his methodology, which is not quote. Uh, it's called neuroassociative conditioning because he used some behavioral conditioning patterns as well uh, in some of the things that he did. But he does a, a process where he, he talks about modeling and, you know, um, John the baker, who's the best baker in the world, bakes these amazing cakes, but he doesn't write down his recipes. So in order to be able to understand how he actually does what he does, because he can't teach it because he doesn't have uh, a conscious formula. He is subconsciously uh, masterful. Right. You have to get into the kitchen with him and observe him doing what he does and actually, and then check those processes. Right. And do you, and do you feel that some people are naturally able to tap into these uh, techniques that give people advantages that neuro-linguistic programming does? Well, you know, it, it, there are advantages and there are disadvantages. Um, you know, having been uh, certified originally in 2005 as a master practitioner um, and then certified again in 2009, um, I've, I've had a lot of intellectual exposure to it, and I have an intellectual background. I, my degree was in philosophy. Um, so there are some limitations on it. It does actually have a very sort of steroidal quality about amplifying people's capacity to take effective action. But when a person relies a lot on their intellect... yeah. There's, it's usually a double-edged sword. Why is that? Well, everything that can be amplified in a positive way can be amplified in a, in, in a potentially negative way. So in other words, if a person doesn't get to, you know, to a resolution on a particular issue or they hit uh, a barrier and they don't have a uh, resolve to it, it, it's almost like you can speed up the negative aspect of, right. of it as well. Right. And so there's... There are some some challenges there, and then there's just a limitation on 
on that specific tool, on the intellect as such. You know, we we have two hemispheres, and though hemispherology, you know, is not exact as a science, um, Jill Bolte-Taylor likes to talk about the fact, and she was a Harvard neuroanatomist who uh, is re- well known for uh, a very uh, famous TED talk that she did uh, about her own stroke and and experiencing a stroke and then describing a stroke as it's happening in real time as a neuroanatomist, right? She knew what was happening on a certain level and she didn't on another. And then she found her limitations as she started trying to do behaviors. Right. So what I'm what I'm referencing is the fact that she talks about the left hemisphere is effectively uh, a linear processor, right? And that is a serial processing process, right? Just going through linear progressions. Right. Whereas the right hemisphere of the brain is a parallel processor, which is a very different thing. And ironically, her experience showed her that the same peace and freedom that so many humans are looking for outside themselves actually exists right inside the hemispheres of their brain. Maybe not specifically localized only there, but a major location where that exists. And so sometimes when I'm working with clients, I reference the right lobe as a portal because it's actually a, a, a potential pathway to the kinds of peace and consciousness, uh, self-awareness that people seek through deep meditation and uh, ritual practices really available in a heartbeat. Right. So you're saying that with neurolinguistic programming and these techniques, you can actually access the portals of your mind to change uh, the purpose in your life. Well, I, I wouldn't attribute it to neurolinguistic programming, though th- that was one of the drivers in some of these um, inquiries in the first place. Uh, okay. There's a there's an old story about Richard Bandler. Um, hearing about a particularly famous guru and then um, flying from somewhere like New Delhi uh, by helicopter up to the top of the mountain to meet this man. And he met him, he had a tea with him, he, you know, broke bread. And then he, uh, he was going to get back in the helicopter and go back for an event. And, uh, you know, the, the story goes that the guru was sort of jealous because by his modalities and by his tradition, he would have had it would have taken him a week to go down the mountain to, to go, you know, right. to the village, and he couldn't go to the party that night that Bandler was going to unless Bandler gave him a ride. Right. And so the the there is a kind of a um, ugly American characteristic to that, uh, and you know this is a sort of an attitude that was attributed to americans in in the late 1800s and the uh the early uh, 1900s when wealthy americans went to europe and behaved uh, brashly um uh, assumptively about uh their their knowledge and their intelligence right. as opposed to traditions of a thousand plus years throughout europe and there's this this push and pull between 
well, what's ritual that really is important and what can actually be cut through? And the modeling attempt is to actually get rid of what's unnecessary. Is it necessary to spend 50 years to do this? Oh, maybe not. If it isn't, well, then let's get there quicker because how, how much better would it be for more human beings to get more access to a greater level of um, peaceful consciousness sooner than a thousand years. And how do people achieve that faster? Um, my experience has been that it's really a paradigm shift that, that leads to more rapid, quiet mindedness. Um, it already exists and a person can experience it but usually we are so conditioned to external validation that we don't give ourselves credit for actually having had that experience right. or knowing how to repeat it. And what do you right? think uh, keeps people from achieving that? Like uh, sometimes a lot of people self-sabotage when they're about to achieve something that they've always wanted. What, what mechanism is responsible for those kinds of things? Well, there's a, the, the answer that I'm going to give you is probably going to sound trite and a little, a, a little overly simplistic, but it's unfortunately the truth. Their thinking. Their thinking is what it is that creates what it is they experience in their reality. And the sabotage occurs, you know, we can talk about elaborate mechanisms and talk about subconscious mind and, and these metaphors that may actually not reference anything real, but instead a conceptual explanation. Right. What really comes down to is there is a survival tendency in the body and in a, in a set of software we often refer to as the ego, which usually kicks in somewhere between the ages of five or six and eight years of age when a child sort of leaves a state of of imprinting as with other animals and where they're just taking everything in non-critically and they develop a critical factor is what that how that conversation usually goes and the truth of the matter is, is that there is a there is a socialization process that goes on where a child ends up having an experience where they they lose the tendency for free play, they lose as much the tendency for creativity, they lose the tendency for releasing or letting go, as as was natural to them previously, and it's as though they get an adult set of teeth, you know, in this set of this uh, sort of software program of of the ego, which is meant to, to protect them and keep them alive and have them become uh, aware of their separateness and individuality. Now, the irony of that is, is that as soon as they get into their 30s or 40s, what they're really looking for is how do I get back to where it was that I, when I thought I was part of this universal oneness. And can that be achieved at that age as we grow older? Is there a way to find our path back? I, I think absolutely it is. And I, I think that some people struggle with it more than others. And I would have to say that I probably would have been, am a great example for that. Um, I had a conversation with a 22 year old the other day, who's a, a DJ and he was raised in the 
the Krishna movement. And his dad was a little concerned um, that he wasn't really fully expressed, even though he was an art graphic artist and a, and, uh, a musician and a uh, um, animation artist. Uh, he, and he was kind of stuck in his relationship. And we had one conversation and he started making all kinds of changes because all that happened wasn't a bunch of neuro-linguistic pre-planned thinking or, or thinking even. It was just me having a chat with somebody and getting deeply connected with them. And he reconnected with his own power and the lack of the need for external validation uh, about what was the right thing to do and what was the wrong thing to do. And uh, he just made a choice that he felt was a freer, more honest choice in relationship to a relationship that he had with a three-year-long uh, relationship with a girlfriend. And he's absolutely you know, on fire about the freedom that he's feeling and the, the expression, so such that he actually released a song that he'd been holding back for two years for some subconscious reason. He was afraid to let it out to the world because it was expressing something that he he felt there was some sort of consequence to, right? That he would get some right. negative feedback from his family or, or the young lady that he was in relationship with. Uh, within... 48 hours, he manifested connection with a, a lady that uh, uh, he is completely enamored with and had actually been at Burning Man watching dance uh, two years ago. And um, turns out she was at the very first gig that he ever performed at. I mean, these kinds of synchronicities occurred because they were already there, available to occur. Right, right. It didn't occur because of anything that I did specifically as in a technique. Right. I've actually experienced that where um, people I meet in life, I've mm -hmm. passed by them or I've been in the same place that they were in. And it all, almost mm -hmm. seems like our brains or subconsciousness is aware of them and we're not consciously aware of them. And when we see them later on in life, we have this familiarity that we can't understand that we have with them. And it's really because our subconsciousness has already been aware of them at some point prior does that make sense? It, it absolutely does make sense. And when you think about this, this uh, you know, information from NLP, basically, you know, having been cultivated starting around 1972, 1973, and then carried forward for several decades, um, it, it's quite ironic that some of the fundamental models that have been created in NLP haven't gained... Um, parlance in in more standard education but of course one of the challenges is is that it nlp didn't want to be validated by the uh, framework of intellectual systems that already exist because they're pretty stodgy and very uh in many cases scarcity oriented it's not that they're they're wrong it's just that they're it's like um a massive institution. It's very challenging to get the kinds of um, formalized validations to prove that something, uh, you know, has academic merit. Right. But you could take it in the field and change somebody's phobia in 15 minutes. So you can't go to a university and take an NLP class? Um, I, I personally don't know of any, um, but I know that a lot of university professors have taken NLP classes because it enhances their ability to do what they do and to get, you know, to, to um, drop 
a lot of the sort of self-sabotaging behaviors that, you know, we were referencing earlier about when people would do things, you know, they would get to the point where they would, you know, be ready to have a major success and then they, you know, um, do something that, to, to sabotage it. So going back to what you were talking earlier about these, uh, these kind of mechanisms that people learn when they're very young and that sabotage them later in life. Are they designed to have them survive in the world? I mean, is there a purpose for them? Is there a reason why they actually are implemented? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and um, there are a number of people who who you know work in the these fields that are not necessarily practicing NLP as such right now, and partly because it's a very delineated topic and it tends to be focused on the intellect and it tends to be focused on techniques and skills and, and structures. And though they're, they are not inherently wrong in any, in any specific respect, they are maybe unnecessary. Okay. Um, so for example, one of the, the fields that I've uh, been connected to is sometimes referred to in a branding sense as three principles. And uh, one of the, my coaches is a guy by the name of Jamie Smart from the United Kingdom, uh, Canadian by origin. And he was actually a, a programmer uh, and uh, project manager in uh, computers and in the internet. Um, and he was also a raging alcoholic. And the way he addressed his alcoholism uh, was through NLP, and it was so transformational that it, it caused him to look at, okay, well, what would I really rather do? What would be a more full expression of who I am? And then he ended up having a decade-long or 12-so years very successful NLP business, uh, you know, which he built up from scratch, not knowing how to do it in, in, at the start, but became very, very renowned for his uh, hypnosis and so forth. But in around 2009, he had a major shift, and part of it was because he had planned to get to a particular spot where he would have residual income that would give him a larger amount of personal freedom to move about where he wanted to, to do whatever he wanted. And after about week three or week two, he was so bored out of his mind, he's like, this is clearly not it. <laughs> his mind was racing. He had all kinds of doubts and questions going on, and it, he wasn't getting the freedom that he wanted. I think he, actually, you know, and, and he, I think he was in Whistler. Seriously, wow. you know, I mean, if you can't be at peace in Whistler, <laughs> you know, it's clearly not place that causes peace. Right. 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 So he knew of somebody who'd worked a lot with um, uh, Bandler producing live events in the United Kingdom, and in London in particular, a guy by the name of Michael Neal, who's actually in Topanga. And Michael Neal had been an actor, and he, he came from a very intellectual family. He had a, he had a lot of depression in his background and even um, suicidal ideation. And he had a very successful uh, NLP business, but he was still suffering from... Uh, consequences of this depression and he he would be you know vibrant on stage and he'd get stuff done and he'd make all this difference and then he'd just slump down in in you know the limousine going home and he talks about it now as you know he just didn't know what he didn't know and uh, a friend of his introduced him to the to this work which is the the result of an enlightenment experience of a third grade educated scottish welder from Salt Creek Island, British Columbia, a guy by the name of Sidney Banks. And 
what happened for Sydney was he he said he understood in twenty some minutes the true nature of God. But of course, the consequence of understanding the true nature of God is that you understand the true nature of man. Oh, or woman, you know, humankind, right. and his awareness of how the mechanisms of of our reality work became so simple and clear and evident that he was able to see through all kinds of problems and he had a sense of contentment about him that actually gave people phenomenal contact high one of the people that that um uh Worked with him directly is a guy by the name of Dick and Bettinger, and then there's a, a several other people, um, dozens and dozens of people who actually worked directly with Sid before he passed. And there was an experience where one of the students uh, had gotten a Stanford PhD in psychology and was looking for the greatest level of, of life satisfaction in North America because he wanted to model that as a way to be able to um, show health rather than, you know, uh, illness, right, which was the Freudian focus, right? How do you, what's broken uh, and what is – what. And, and coming from that model, instead he wanted to come from a model of wellness. So he finds out that this place, Salt Creek Island, has the best, you know, reports there. It's just a complete outlier as far as uh, life satisfaction is concerned. Well, okay, he has to get to the bottom of that. So he does some more research and finds out that the only thing that the people had in common who were giving this rating of life satisfaction was contact with Sid Banks. Okay, so what's that about? So he actually traveled to the island. He found out that a friend of his knew Sid, uh, knew how to connect with the people there, did did this connection. He shows up in the first evening, and um, he Sid's talking to a, a room of uh, 60 couples. Okay. Um, he walks in the door. Sid's talking, everybody's there, maybe one or two people turn. Um, he said, you know, I have never seen 60 happy couples before in my life, but I did that night. In fact, I'm not sure if I've ever really seen before that day a happy couple. I, people came close, but nobody that just liked that. And he said it was the most amazing thing. He entered this room and these people were really really happy. And they, they weren't listening to a cult sermon or something. They were listening to a man speak philosophically about his experiences of becoming aware of how the mind makes reality. And it made them feel really peaceful, like things made sense. Right. And in that respect, he shared the benefits of his enlightenment experience by giving people glimpses of something that they already had within them, this innate sense of wisdom and knowledge that basically had been conditioned out of them because of what I like to refer to as the greatest piece of FX equipment in the universe. Which is? Right. Our brain. Our brain. It absolutely makes it look like everything's happening out there. And, and, Michael Neal talks about the inside-out paradigm because life is actually happening from us, through us, into the world. But it feels like, because of our conditioning and the way we've 
we experience like, like it's happening to us. Our sensoria is oriented and our meaning-making faculties have been organized in such a way that victimhood is actually a higher resonant frequency than where a large portion of humanity has spent their time in previous generations, right? It's actually a powerful place. It's so powerful that it's actually convincing as an identity. And this is what ends up happening in my experience. My experience is, is that people become identified with their their personality, which is a completely made-up concept and completely flexible. So, uh, so you mean to say that personalities are in a way an illusion as well? So, things like uh, cluster B personality disorders. What are those then? Um, well, if you look at it from the original assessments of of NLP, because NLP actually took a look at that, it's a strategy to achieve a particular experience on the part of of the human being that may be to protect themselves in a hostile environment maybe to um, get a certain kind of attention um, it it may be to be able to feel purposeful and protected right. so that there's a strategic goal in the adaptive personality or adaptive psychological profile, but what's really underneath that is, is the truth, right? Is the actual place where the unmanifest becomes manifest. Right. And one thing that's interesting, um, there's a, there's a personality disorder called borderline personality disorder. Yep. And what's so interesting about it is they actually use something called DBT. And it's mm-hmm. kind of like a, a language. They they use language to kind of change the way they think. So it, in a sense, it's almost uh, it's it almost seems like it's an, a version of NLP or using language to for therapy. Well, let me let me share with you what what the, was the first experience that I, that I had that was really of an of a large differentiation, because as a person who, because of a lot of stigma as a child. And because of a lot of attention being paid to some challenges I had fitting into the normal learning grid uh, and, and teaching environment, when I first went through the, the training to coach from this model, right, this, I, this understanding of the world, right. one of the key things that a lot of people say is, well, I understand that intellectually, which is really like saying, well, I really don't understand that. Because, because it's intellectual understanding is a conceptual idea, and it's not an experiential thing. And what we're designed for fundamentally is experiential learning, and you see children learning how to walk and talk and other behaviors, and it's all an experiential process. There's no book, right? There's no diagrams. It's all about observing other people doing these things, standing up and trying to do it themselves, finding out about balance, finding out about leg movements, finding out about, you know, motor skills, and then developing the the proprioception to actually be able to do that. Right. Now, my experience was I was asked a question by a coach in a group coaching environment uh, on a rotation, and in a heartbeat, 
I saw myself giving an answer that wasn't really the legitimate, honest response. I actually saw in my own mind the first time that I ever gave that response to a teacher asking me a question in a classroom environment, and I was trying to keep from being the kid who was marked out as not knowing the answer. I instead kind of double-talked the teacher in a in a NLP-esque kind of <laughs> confusing way, and they just thought, oh, shit, you know, never mind. But the, <laughs> the irony is that it, when you're actually trying to get at the truth of what's going on for you, the distinction I was getting was, ah, there's habitual thought triggered by an environmental stimuli, uh, trigger, yeah. stimuli that, that was not actually the same as the previous one. In fact, with the intention to be exactly the opposite, to, to open and unfold exact moments to see exactly that kind of distinction about one's own thought. Oh, there is habitual thought. Well, what is, what is authentic and truthful is actually the non-habitual thought, the non-pattern, non-behaviorally ingrained thought that comes fresh like spring water. Now, how, how can you distinguish though? Is it the first thought you have or is it the second thought you have after you've manufactured the first one that was behavioral based? Well, the distinction really starts to become a self-observation about the, the, the pace of one's own thinking. So one of the things that happens with Jamie when Jamie coaches, and there's, I mean, there's lots of lots of examples of, of him coaching and he's he's a brilliant brilliant coach but he's kind of a you know a, a very few trick pony in order to get people to this initial state of, of awareness and what it is is it's an awareness of when you have a lot of thinking going on typically you're not in the moment typically you're not in relationship to your body you're not grounded or centered and when asked a question that could potentially be seen on some level as challenging or needing deep reflection, people will actually not breathe. They will unconsciously stop. take a deep breath and then stop breathing. Because it actually catches them off guard to call them into such a state of reflection. So he somewhat frequently will say, breathe. Remember to breathe. That's how people start to hyperventilate and have panic attacks, too. Well, yeah, but, I mean, this is one of those examples about um, NLP. So, for example, there's a famous story that Tony tells about being too busy to, to respond to um, Carly Simon having a panic attack uh, before going on stage. And one, so one of his, his trained people went instead. And a few days later, he actually did an interview with, with uh, Bruce Springsteen. And so this was still kind of on his mind. And he, he asked Bruce, he said, well, how do you know when you're ready to go on stage instead of like just freaking out? Right. And he said, well, let me think about that for a second. Um, I can notice that my heart's beating. I can, I can kind of hear it in my head. 
I notice that my pulse is up a little bit. I notice that my fingers are, are kind of moist, uh, maybe a, a little bit uh, sweaty or maybe clammy. And I might even have a little bit of uh, perspiration on my head. And that's when I know I'm ready to go. Well, the same exact description was what Carol King had said was what, how she knew she was having a panic attack. So the thinking that she, the meaning she gave her experience was what actually caused her to have one variation than the other, because they were so close. I mean, this two millimeter difference that, that Tony talks about behaviorally, the meaning we give experience is the meaning that the experience takes on. Right. So we'll actually put ourselves in a kind of a trance state and we will have a panic attack, if we think, oh, my God, I'm having a panic attack, then we actually we hyperventilate and, right. you know, all the other stuff that happens. Our, our hearts raise and our pulse goes up really, really high. Our blood pressure goes high. But if you're Bruce Springsteen and you see those things happening, you know, 15 minutes before you're the, the uh, stage, you know, um, curtain's supposed to open, he just knows he's ready to go. Right. It's a way of the body getting ready. Now, let me ask you a question. What is an alpha state? An alpha state is a state of um, coherence, uh, sometimes referred to as a slight trance state, where a person drops out of a standard beta brainwave activity into um, a slightly more meditative and calm state. If you look at the Institute of HeartMath's work um, up in Northern California, they actually talk about heart coherence, heart-brain coherence. And so the alpha state in, is pretty deep usually, sometimes borderline, uh, you know, theta uh, or, or, or delta state. Um, but what, you know, what happens in that alpha state is typically the capacity to um, imagine clearly to visualize uh, more more fully and with more sensorial uh, completeness occurs. Um, people tend to have um, waking dreams and or um, fresh creative thought. Uh, they can conduct um, sort of playful thought experiments very easily or see themselves in a place of great uh, peace and, and serenity, like a secret garden or something of that nature. Okay. And what do you think drives, I mean, there's a, there's an epidemic in this country of suicide. Actually, it's one of the leading causes of death in America. And yes. uh, what do you think is contributing to that, that aspect of American life? Well, the consumerism and externality, I think, is really a large part of it, and, and that sounds really broad and, and sweeping and extremely general. Um, there is a very, very good short TED Talk um, <clears throat> which is titled um, Everything You Think You Know About Addiction Is Wrong. And um, just having a slight challenge recalling, Johan Hari um, is the name of the, the speaker. He's a, a uh, British journalist. And 
So John Harry had a lot of experience in his childhood with depression, and he had had many heavy medical um, diagnoses and took a lot of medications. Uh, he's got a separate book on that topic. But one of his first experiences in his family life with addiction was one that was actually unconscious. He didn't realize in the moment. He didn't know that he was dealing with addiction. He found this out afterwards. He tried to wake up a relative and he couldn't do it. Right. The person was dead right. from an overdose. And what, what he realized was that he had a lot of addicts in his family and these were a lot of people that he really loved and he realized that he didn't really understand what was going on for them and the more he looked into the basic research the more he felt like he really didn't understand and needed to do some work and it ended up being a two-year-long sort of investigative piece that ended up in a book and there's a number of different video pieces about it but it, the the summary gets really really direct. And in the 1910s, 1920s, the original um, addiction model experimentations that were, were done by psychologists uh, and uh, biological, biological researchers had isolated animals in cages. So they had a singular animal in a singular cage with a wheel and two different bottles, you know, either cocaine or, or heroin and water. And what seemed to happen inevitably is that the animal would choose the addictive chemical and it would kill itself somewhat rapidly. But this, this experiment was rethought in the 1950s and something called Rat Park was created. Now, this is a much less well-known idea because the original concept is is that there is some chemical hook inside the uh, the heroin or cocaine or whatever the drug product is right. that we become addicted to uh, in a physiological way and With dopamine. Uh, well it, it, dopamine release can occur from a lot of different right ways but what what he was able to to prove with this rat park experiment was that when the animals don't have an environment of deprivation, they instead have an environment of connection. They won't hardly ever choose the drug and they never chose the drug to uh, their own demise. They never overdosed ever barely used it and when they did, it was never in that same sort of habitual, um, self-destructive way, trying to avoid this. And what arises from this is not only did he actually go to Portugal and look at the experiment there where they've, you know, decriminalized uh, major narcotics because they couldn't, you know, they believed that they could not afford to support the drug war any further, yet they were had one of the most, you know, uh, heroin-addicted populations in all of Europe. After 13 or 14 years now, it turns out that it was one of the best decisions they've made. Not only have they uh, more than uh, cut the addiction rate in the country by half, and the same with, uh, or like two-thirds reduction in, in influx of heroin through uh, their ports, but they turned the monies instead 
towards social programs, which were designed to to re you know uh, patriate people so that they were given community to connect with, and they were given family um, tools to be able to relate to their you know to their own fam- family members, and they were never given a, a you know a uh, legal sentence that kept them from working you know in their chosen fields you know for the rest of their life like we do in the United States and instead what ended up happening is is that you know you major fall off of addiction major um you know uh repatriation and re resocialization of people into into the culture um the one of the scientists on on the board that originally advised Portugal in the direction that they chose to go had said that the worst possible example uh, of a way to keep an addict addicted would be the American system because we punish through guilt and shame and criminal fines and legal other legal means uh, people for basically having a social uh, abnormality or a health issue. And you know, it all stems back to moralization through, you know, from religion, you know, the same thing that brought about, um, you know, uh, the original criminalization of alcohol. So, right. It, it didn't, it didn't work. And so it was, it was dropped, but this other piece is much more, it seems invisible, but you know, it, Harry points out that there was a tremendous amount of uh, fear on the part of governmental officials during the Vietnam War because of the amount of heroin usage in country in Vietnam. Forty um, percent at times of our troops were using heroin, and they were really afraid that they were going to be getting drug addicted. Uh, folks coming back into the country and that they were going to have this rash of addictions. And what proved to be the case is that once you extricated people from this extraordinary pressure situation of extreme hostility and isolation, well, they didn't need or want the drug anymore. Now, there was some addiction that came back from it, but it was nothing like what they were afraid of. It was was like 8% compared to 40%. 40%. It was significantly below the, the level of the feared projections. And and part of the reason why the, this was so afraid was because they were, they were tied into the physical addiction model. So what Harry points out, and I think with great reason, is the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is is connection because we are a social species right yeah, but what about people who are who are very uh, introverted and usually stay away from people and they don't become addicted uh, to things like drugs what, what, what do you have to say about them I mean what's the kind of behavioral model that they use to well, get around yeah, I mean there's all kinds of abnormal behavioral you know uh, psychology theories. Um, my personal experience has been that a lot of times the folks who have these extraordinary outlier introversions, uh, you know, come from backgrounds where there was a lot of trauma or there, it was not safe 
to be fully expressed. Right. I know that in my own family, it wasn't safe to be fully expressed. And I, I hardly came from a violent family. I, I have a friend who's, you know, dad kicked him down a staircase at three. It didn't get better. Right. You know, um, he happens to be a top performer with a lot of neuroses. Right. And a lot of it's around trying to prove himself. And this is part of the, the challenge, you know, that we experience when, if, if as children, when we're trying to learn how the world works and our actual survival relies upon it, and we look up at this human being called a parent and they are a giant in the world, literally, and we're a helpless little thing that doesn't have the capacity to take care of itself. We really, really have a vested interest in getting them to do, uh, you know, nurturing behaviors it's a big deal right and 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 i think for like a family uh to create an environment uh where you have healthy children you usually have to have the mother and the father involved and with the epidemic in this country of like fatherless children it it almost seems like yeah the future of this country is pretty much doomed at that well you know here's an example there is a there is a book um, called Modelo, and Modelo is is just a story of two, uh, of really one intervention. Okay, um, and it has to do with the Sydney Banks uh, stuff. So, <clears throat> Modelo is the name of a uh, Southern Florida housing project that even the police wouldn't go into during the beginning of the crack crack epidemic. And this, this uh, set of events has been actually repeated in, in Oakland, but what ended up happening was a, a, a Stuart mill. I believe the PhD was the person who uh, was involved in uh, connecting with a, an outreach program that was looking at ways of connecting with the population of this inner city. You know, it was a, and it was a wild west. Um, so, um, he really was going by intuition. There was no model he had from, from his psychological background and, and training. He didn't have, um, finan- a large amount of financial support. He just had, you know, enough to get along on and what he what he ended up doing was creating relationships with the the key leaders leaders inside the community the the women particularly the community was you know 90 percent black um who were seen as the dominant figures in the in the community with all of their you know unusual characteristics and dependency on welfare and so forth um within two years of having the first meeting with Dr. Mill and being introduced to this topic, uh, all the drug dealers were gone from Modelo. Self-extricated. They, there was no one for them to, to sell to. So what, the, what, what the community had self-organized. Well, this so what it, it isn't what they did in in general. So when I shared about Sydney and all those happy couples, yeah. Mill was able to share his experience of seeing his own internal wisdom and his own internal wisdom uh, and resilience that had that was innate within him, and was able to share that story and share a sequence of of um, days of 
reflecting on that and then people started seeing their own internal wisdom. Now, these are people who typically have been seen as, um, you know, multi-generational dependents, uh, people who, you know, will never get off welfare, et cetera, et cetera. There's all kinds of stigma that has been applied to, to these folks. But the interesting thing is the same thing happened in Oakland. Once this philosophy or philosophical approach was brought in, people started seeing that they had an actual creative participation in the making of the reality they were experiencing and that just because they had a thought they didn't have to do what it said right okay and because it wasn't really even their thought necessarily it was just a thought they didn't have to overreact to it or blame anybody either they could actually just let it pass and when they started that behavior and they started seeing more of these habitual thoughts that had kept them in behaviors which were not constructive and quite often destructive to their own and others' lives, they stopped doing the stuff that didn't work because it was an innate success training that existed within the structure of, of the being itself that human had not just the capacity to create a reality for its own conscious perception but it actually had the choice to do one thing rather than another and it wasn't compelled they were not compelled to make negative destructive decisions and so they stopped doing that they got their own um market. They built their own market, staffed it themselves. They created uh, daycare, uh, GED uh, acquisition tripled. Um, the number of people that were employed doubled. I mean, it just within a two-year period and progressively, people started solving the problems that were keeping them in this cycle of poverty and disempowerment. Right? Something that sociology would say happened to them and was due to all these various causes. Well, it isn't that the causes didn't exist. It's that the assumption of who the being was at core was fundamentally flawed. We are, in fact, capable of, of rising from the ashes multiple times and being fitter, fuller, more complete beings As a consequence, dropping off stuff that isn't true about who and what we are, right? A lot of that being conditioning about, you know, specific religious approaches or philosophical and moral approaches. You know, the there's a story that's often told as an illustration about conditioning, and you know, it's basically if you get a baby elephant. Uh, you know, and you you chain it to a stake in the ground. It can't pull the stake up. It'll it'll learn that it won't. It shouldn't pull. But as an adult, you chain that same elephant to the stake, which it could pull up with the slightest movement of its of its hoof. It still won't do it because it thinks it can't. It's like Pavlovian programming. 
Absolutely. I mean, in fact, there have been cases where elephants have died in fires because they wouldn't break out of tent enclosures, um, you know, uh, which they could easily do because they've been, you know, conditioned and conditioned and brutalized in that situation. Now, you know, I mean, elephants are not the dumbest animals in the world and most assuredly human beings can make similar types of, of choices, the same wrong choice multiple times. Well, Part of the challenge for a child is they really, really, really need and seek attention and validation, uh, uh, you know, especially if they've been deprived of it or been given harsh treatment at, at different points. If what's available in their home life environment is harsh treatment, they'll seek that because it's attention. Right, right. And and that will carry forward into their life and they will they will do behaviors that get those same negative attention you know, attention put upon them like they're somehow cursed, but it's actually a strategic conditioning because that's what was happening at home and they don't know a different model. Right. They take it's not that, that they can't wake up to it. It's they, they just typically don't. Yeah. They take that into the relationships and they kind of reenact childhood traumas. Yeah. It's Carl Jung said that, you know, whenever there was a wedding, there was actually two weddings going on, you know, um, there was the bride and the groom at the dais in in the main hall of the church, and then in the basement there was the uh, father of the bride and the mother of the groom. Absolutely, <laughs> right. And these are the unconscious behaviors and expectations that are put upon the other sex in the actual marital relationship. And of course, we also, you know, you can look at psychologically. There's a thing called limercy, right? Which is that basically, for six to nine months, we tend to to fall madly in love with uh, another person, um, absolutely not seeing their flaws because of some level of comfort with an unconscious um, set of conditioning that is similar to the background that we came from, which may mean that we're treated well or poorly, you know, based upon the way that we were treated in previous life. So it's, it's a sort of a set point. The problem is, is that about nine months that wears off and you start looking at the other person going, Oh, this is the real person. Oh my goodness. Right. Or they get married thinking it's going to get better. And then they have a child. Right. And it doesn't get better. It just gets more survival-oriented. Right, but in a way, it seems like nature's kind of made it that way. So, we Oh, can... there's no doubt that the species wants to survive. Right, so in a way, but nature's made it that way. that's not really the consciousness that we are in our bodies. I mean, um, you're probably familiar with the, the microbiologist Bruce Lipton. Absolutely. Right, so the biology of belief. You know, Bruce said he was an absolute atheist up until one point in his research, and it's when he realized that the proteins on the cell structure functioned as antennae, and that there was no Bruce in there. Bruce was actually originating from somewhere else. And where do you think that is? I'm not sure if it's a physical space. I think it may be another dimensionality. I don't think it's the 3D, you know, meat suit reality. Now, it could be Alpha Centauri for all I know. I, I, I don't claim to have any, you know, any real knowledge about, uh, about that. But why would there be intended to pick up the frequencies of a spirit or a soul that isn't locally harbored in the body? I don't know, but it seems to be the case. And, and, and if you get Tom Campbell and Bruce Lipton together, there's a video of the two of 
the meeting, here's a guy who come, you know, my big toe, the theory of everything by Tom Campbell, an astrophysicist who comes from a mathematical physics background. And then Bruce Lipton, who came through microbiology, but had to access physics in order to be able to comprehend what he was learning, right? All going to quantum and string theory. And they're, they both come together on one key thing. The substance of reality as we experience it is made up of something that, for lack of a better term, is unconditional love. Two scientists, both originally atheists, determined that, it, that life stuff is made up of unconditional love. It's absolutely, I find it spiritually stimulating to hear the, these two massive intellects talk to each other because, you know, Lipton taught at Stanford and Harvard and major medical schools. I mean, it's, you know, his, his intellectual pedigree is, is, cannot be called into question. But what he discovered was that, you know, the, the predetermined idea that there was somehow a genetic determination was in fact wrong and actually known as the dogma in medical school. Um, you know, his joke is, well, what other male-dominated field would uh, mistake um, <laughs> the gonads for the intellect? <laughs> because the actual intellect of the cell structure is its, is its membrane, the cell membrane. It can only be one layer deep, which is, forces colonization for increase of intellect for for all animals since we're going down this path what do you think about the idea that human beings have telepathy and when they have dreams in, in a way to communicate if they're dreaming of a person you know um i don't have a lot of experience with it personally but you know the young man that i was sharing about voss um the other day, the young lady that he had seen at Burning Man and then encountered in, uh, you know, an unlikely synchronistic event, um, they're 300 miles apart. And they had this five-hour conversation, and they said, well, you know, I'll see you in your dreams. And they actually both believed they had an astral projection into each other's dream. And, you know, um, I'm not the person to say that that didn't happen. I don't know if it happened the way that they quote think it happened, if you know scientifically exactly what the mechanism is for it, but they both experienced seeing the other in their dream state. Um, you know, Thoreau and Carl Jung talked regularly about cosmic consciousness. That there was a, an oversoul or a cosmic intelligence level at which all thinking was available, all ideas, all experience, all history was available at all times to all parties. And so, you know, you, you end up like getting a, uh, this. A collective consciousness. Absolutely a collective consciousness. You, 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 you get into a, um, a non um, – what do they call it? Non-local events territory here. Right. Yeah, isn't there a, a book called like the Book of Life where everything that's ever happened is in this book? 
You know, I think there's a number of metaphors around that. There is a thing called the Akashic Records. The Akashic Records. That's actually what I was thinking about. Yeah. And um, I, my friend who'd received a lot of the abuse, uh, another friend of mine has a, a tremendous background in Native American healing and was actually a Delta Force medic um, in Central America, uh, which was quite a trauma for a medic. Um, as he sure saw a lot of unnecessary... Uh, death and injury but um he has since like eight years of age had this ability to you know um see auras and and uh, uh has studied for over 13 years in clearing auric fields um you know being able to uh take people into and actually tell teach them how to access the akashic records for for themselves um and he also is quite well aware that there are certain kinds of um, information that supposedly isn't supposed to be dealt with. I mean, you did know, he use psychedelics for this? No. No. And, 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 and this attorney, um, he's not close to it. But he never has, and he, he didn't. He was legit watched a bunch of YouTube videos about past life uh, material and started seeing things such as uh, being part of battles in previous lifetimes, one of which he extricated himself from because he saw that it was unnecessarily harsh and everybody's going to die. And then they did. And then he had, he had survivor guilt, which apparently has carried over. So he's been addressing that topic because, you know, it isn't all what we think it is. And, um, there seem to be unseen forces. Um, I think there, um, there's a guy by the name of Robert um, Shankman. I think that's his name. Um, his grandfather was the founder of Manpower. And he remembers uh, being about six years of age in Geneva, uh, one of his his grandfather's homes and uh, being called in for a meeting with his grandfather and studied the two of them and his grandfather sharing with him that, that there's a lot of people who talk about the unseen world and they, they, they're talking about the unconscious mind and so on and so forth. But that's not what, what it is. There's this unseen world where all major power exists and, there's a sense of intentionality. He said, without this particular experience, and we're not talking about, you know, Masonic temples and dark arts. Um, if he hadn't had this particular experience himself, he would not have been able to create that multi-billion dollar corporation. And, and Robert is really disappointed because six months later, his grandpa died and he never got to finish that conversation or get further assistance in, in finding it out. But it became the breadcrumb that caused him to go on his particular journey of self-realization. Right. And um, let me ask you, um, mm -hmm. what are the, for a quantum breakthrough, what are the kind of services that you offer and what are breakthrough sessions? Well, a, a quantum breakthrough session is basically an opportunity to have, you know, what sometimes is called a strategy call. It's a get-to-know-you know conversation, but it's focused around what is it that the party, the other party wants? What is the, you know, um, the potential client uh, or 
uh, you know, party seeking uh, clarification, looking to achieve in their lives. So it's it's about getting clarity around what you're trying to create in your life, where you are in, in relationship to that. Um, quantum breakthroughs, services, you know, a bespoke um, business coaching, um, and what I've discovered amongst the the leaders that I've worked with is that a lot of times they get hooked in these childhood, you know, persona, such as, um, you know, I was the kid raised on um, food stamps or, uh, you know, some limiting belief that, that they have that sort of unfoldingly manifests itself or they get to a certain level of accomplishment and then they can't get the next level for whatever reason. And a lot of times that turns out to be because of um, this uh, false identity, the thinking that they're something that they are not, someone that they are not. And um, so what I typically do is not, quote, go in and technically fix folks. I create a space where they can implement and exercise their progressive wisdom. And um, I had a 27-year chiropractor uh, that I was working with, and he's a specialist in uh, NUCA, National Upper Cervical Chiropractic Association. He had been practicing in the same community for for 27 years, Um, brilliant at his his craft, but kind of burnt out. He He didn't have the best mindset. Wonderful guy, great physical shape. Um, after we got in about 10 months, he had his second daughter. So he had a younger wife, 28 years old. He was 54. Um, he had finally, on his third marriage, had a family. And, uh, you know, piece by piece, I just helped him get back in touch with his own power. And by May, he was like, Jack, I've got my swagger back. And then that same month that he had his second daughter, he manifested. He attracted to him six brand new clients that he'd never marketed for just because of who he was being in the world. The following month, I actually did an interview with him on video, and he had moved his business from 20 days of work a month to 12. The following Two months later, in August, he, he went on a trip to Boise, loved the community, bought a house, moved the family there. He worked seven days out of the month. He's an active dad the rest of the time. He's making more money than he was before. That's amazing. And where can people find uh, your services, like your website? Uh, Jack at jackaustin.com. Okay. www. That's me. 